Welcome to The Mental Cast, powered by Soul Performance Academy. The Mental Cast is a podcast focused on the topics and people helping drive us forward in leadership, learning, and our personal journeys. Just a reminder, you can send in your questions using the hashtag AskDanMickle, A-S-K-D-A-N-M-I-C-K-L-E, or sending an email to info at danmickle.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Mental Cast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Mental Cast. I am Dan Mickle, your host, and today I am very excited to have on with us Dr. Laura Cobb, and she is a life coach, um, among many other things, but I'll let her give her background and intro because she's going to do a much better job at it than I can. So, Dr. Laura, if you don't mind, uh, just giving us a little bit of background and where you come from and, and all that fun stuff. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for having me here. I appreciate it and I'm uh, excited about this opportunity. I'm originally from Chicago and I uh, went right away to school. I went to school for about 12 years in Illinois State and then Purdue and then the University of Maryland. And I started out with sociology. And then I started to kind of streamline into family and children studies and uh, went to Purdue to finish my doctorate. Got married, moved over to Germany for eight years. And the first year I was there, I said, oh, I can't write for eight hours a day. I think I'll start a second master's. Nobody does that because I was a little bit um, discombobulated. I didn't know what to do with my life. So I'll just stay what I know what to do. So I stayed in school. And I earned my second master's in counseling. While I was over in Germany, I worked for a program called Family Advocacy, which was a pro- is a program that oversees uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, to help prevent and educate regarding those areas. I did that for four years. In the meantime, I was president of the American branch of the um, European branch of the American Counseling Association, ran some marathons, did some bodybuilding and figure competitions and taught for a couple of universities and uh, moved back to the States in 09. And um, then uh, we'll move on from there. What, um, when, when you were doing your uh, work in Germany, was that through an American company or was it through the government or, or what was the kind of the tie-in and how did that happen? Great question. When I was in at Purdue in 99, I met my soon-to-be husband online, a dating website called VeggieDate.com back in 99 <laughs> on Struth. And um, he was uh, military, active duty in Bosnia, part of the peacekeeping force. And I was finishing up my doctorate and we decided to get married and moved over to Germany. So anything on my resume that says geographic relocation is completely legit. <laughs> um, <laughs> We, I, I've done some, I've done some work in Germany. Pardon? Um, I've done some work. Uh, one of my friends is a school teacher on Vilsack Air Force Base. So um, I, I've gone over and done camps with him. Sprecher Sie Deutsch? Very little. Sprecher ein bisschen Deutsch, yeah. I mean, mein Deutsch ist nicht so gut. I worked for the U.S. Army. I was a contractor for the Pentagon uh, for the Family Advocacy Program, which is a U.S. Army... Um, program. However, as a contractor, I pretty much worked for myself as freelance. So I could work part-time as a personal trainer, or I could teach university and allowed me opportunity to do that. So very grateful. The most, probably the most fulfilling position employment-wise that I'd ever had in my life. So gratifying. Um, our 
footprint carried over five countries in Europe, 22 army installations and at least 200,000 individual soldiers and civilian members. So a broad reach and quite fulfilling to help prevent and educate regarding child abuse, sexual assault and domestic violence. Very grateful. Yeah, I would imagine that that's a, a tough area. I, I don't know the, t the statistics, but I was surprised at how basically the bases over there, whether it was Ramstein or Vilsack, you know, is basically a little American town plopped in the middle of a, of a foreign country. And I'm sure that has its challenges, both, you know, the, the Americans going off of base, but just being kind of isolated from the rest of the United States. I, I'm sure that from a counseling standpoint, had had a lot of challenges and issues to deal with. Absolutely. And not only the army installations of which there were 22 at the time that I oversaw, there were, as you, as you noted, the army or air force installations. So there were these pockets, there were these little groups of Americans. And it was quite obvious when you, when you'd move, when you transition from the host nation into the army installations, it was, or, I'm sorry, air force military posts or um, bases, as one might say in the air force, it was like a little America. And I lived on the economy, which was wonderful. And at the same time, I worked on an army installation. So it kind of felt disrupted, um, uprooted, so to speak, moving from Americans to, to the Germans, in, in my case, mostly. And it was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful time to have the opportunity to live among and work with individuals who are not American. In, this, in the sense that opportunity to see with the way other cultures lived and to realize that the United States is not the epicenter of the universe. Right. It's, it's kind of eye-opening, isn't it? Um, when, when you're kind of sheltered and, and you don't see that half until you go outside the borders and kind of look at it. So in your bio, you talk about, you know, in your early life and the siblings and kind of getting bullied by your siblings and, and that turned you into a bully. How did you, at the time, how did you see that and how did you feel? And then we'll kind of talk about looking back at it. Well, I think the way I felt was prior to my experience being bullied by my in that I had my first panic attack when I was five. No, I, I was watching Rocky, my hero, no idea where it came from. And just all of a sudden, and then at a certain point, my siblings who I, my, my brother in particular, uh, he was the one I would go to when I was hurt or scared. And he, him being four years older than me, he was one of my older brothers all of a sudden he kind of turned on me and then not no, no ill respect or um, disregard for him. It's just, he was four years older than me and I'm, I'm eight and he's 12 and he wants to hang out with his kid, his, his friends. So then I'm left with my sister and I'm called fat and ugly, um, three years younger than her. So um, really essentially it felt like my family, my loved ones, had turned on me where I relied on them. So the one safe haven that I had, it was, I was felt completely alone. And there were other things that were going on in the home with my other brother that um, one might not call bullying, but essentially it was, you know, there, there are things involved that one doesn't speak about. So uh, essentially I felt like, does anyone know I'm hurting? Can you see that I'm hurting? And family, my parents telling me, well, we can't see it. So we don't see it. So we can't prove it's true. And I'm hurting. So bullying essentially is about power. Right. And having some semblance of control. And even in fifth grade, 
not feeling any control or feeling out of control. And the only way that I knew how to gain some semblance of that as the youngest of four, including two step siblings, was to wield some type of power in the only other capacity that I could, and that was at school. I remember a few girls in particular that I just mercilessly just just um, brutalized in a sense. And uh, it wasn't even so much the, phys the physicality of it. I knew about, I knew and engaged in the mean girl bullying. It wasn't yet mainstream. I mean, this was back in the, in the 80s and I didn't want to date myself too much. <laughs> and so it was um, to such, a, such an extent that some of the other girls in school, they would come to me and ask how I could help them to protect themselves. And in hindsight, very scary because it perpetuates it. At the same time, I remember feeling quite popular because others would come to me asking me for help and all at the same time feeling completely out of control and lonely, very lonely, even though I didn't think I was popular at the time and I still don't that um, at least a little bit of attention was placed on me, which perpetuates the whole insane insanity involved in bullying, which is scary to be honored and revered for what I'm doing, which is re really a manifestation and a result of how I feel at home. The only thing I could gain some semblance of control was because I didn't have it at home. I, I think one of the things that I'd like to explore with you on this is, did you, was there a moment when you're like, okay, this is it. And to have the power and to be where I want to be, I need to be a bully. Or was it like a slow transformation where you just found yourself kind of becoming more the bully? And, and the reason I ask that is, when I talk to parents or we see parents around, I think a lot of them think that there's a trigger or this moment that they can reflect on. And this is when it happened. But I get the sense from kind of how you're telling it that while there may have been certain events that kind of led to it, it, it wasn't just a, hey, I'm going to wake up and be a bully. It, it slowly kind of morphed into that and just grabbing more and more power. Is that how you see it when you look back on it? Or was there a moment when you said, OK, this is exactly how I'm going to feel better, make myself feel better by grabbing the power? Such a, such a great question. I can't speak to that specifically. It's been a few years. I do remember being in this, being in the, in the state of, there was this communication during the day of, well, someone wants to meet with you. They're going to talk to you at the monkey bars or whatever at, after school. Okay, bring it. Being very scared and also feeling uh, there's fear. And really there's two emotions, joy and fear, love and fear. So that fear, if I lay, when I labeled it, kind of a sense of sick empowerment, even though there was a possibility of getting beat up or made fun of, this anxiety and the intensity of excitement almost, so that at least some type of emphasis or attention was placed on me. I can't say that there's a particular event. I do know the grade when it happened. I know that it wasn't winter and I don't believe that it went on for very long. I know it didn't go on for very long. And for some reason, fifth grade specifically stands out. So that's not the, the trajectory of my life. Uh, but, and so maybe it was a acute instance. At the same time, I do recall the feeling of empowerment and in the moment, not a long, not long term after that though, not, not feeling at all empowered by it. The statement that you made about the the fear and the joy is kind of interesting because really 
you did something. You're either going to go and beat someone up or you're going to go and get beat up. But either way, you're going to do something when most people stand on the sidelines. And and, and I think that's kind of a, a weird way to look at it in that sense. But that's kind of a lot of what we go through in life. And we'll, we'll touch on that when we get towards the end and about imposter syndrome, because I think that kind of leads into it. The fact that we, at some point we have to get off the sidelines and I, you saying that, you know, Hey, I'm going to meet at your monkey bars and I might get beat up or I might beat you up, but at least I'm going to do something I think is, is pretty moving and, and telling in the trajectory of how it goes. Um, when did you, was it later than when you started to come out of it or was this a habit that lasted a while, like through high school and into college, or was there a point when you're like, okay, I need to calm this down and, and change how I look at things and stop being the bully and be more open. And w what kind of changed you away from that? I don't recall a specific instance. I do recall the crux of it was, is that I wanted attention in any regard at any, at any price. And if that means getting beat up or beating up. I know that once I started to move into higher grades, schooling, that for some reason it dissipated. It didn't, I didn't need it. And I felt I had a very, very close friend for 12 years. His name was Danny. We were best friends for 12 years and I didn't need it anymore. Cause I, I suppose in hindsight that I felt seen in my relationship with him that I didn't crave external sources that were maybe at an early age, um, insignificant, superfluous. They didn't, they didn't mean anything. And having that more intense, intimate friendship satiated that desire to be seen by others because I had it with another that translates. Right. No, that makes sense. So when you think about the point of the lowest of the lows and is, is there a point where you're just like i i need to change this like you wake up and this isn't right um and and not just the bullying because i'm sure like that aspect moved into things and things maybe continued on a path that you weren't excited about um but obviously where you're at now at some point there had to be a turning point was there an actual intervention crossroads something that you're like okay um, this is what I'm doing and, and, and then this is how I can help people. Ultimately, yes. Fast forward decades. Yes. There were interventions. Yes. There was a point, literally I'm sitting on a concrete slab, a stone, a rock saying, I can't do this anymore. It, it turned into, I didn't like how I felt about myself inside. I remember when I was probably in my early twenties, I was in a long-term relationship and I remember being just in a volatile, just all out fights, just a name calling. And I remember, and this, this is what switched for me when I stopped using the verbal, um, talking verbally towards others, that calling names, and I realized, I don't know what shifted, but th wait, this, these words aren't true. And I was still mad about the situation because being angry in a fight is not about, it's just about power and wanting that control not getting what I want. And I remember specifically saying, thinking these words aren't true. I'm condemning this person's character and that's not accurate. This is a person, first of all, not stupid, not a blankety blank, blankety blank. 
Right. They're not that. It's just, I don't know how else to articulate myself. Now, mind it, I'm in grad school, so I quote unquote should know better. <laughs> it's not about knowing, it's about feeling for me. And I felt terrible about me because it didn't represent who that person was. And it didn't represent how I felt about who I wanted to be. And I didn't like how, I didn't feel like a better person as a result of this interaction. That's when that, I mean, there's so many pivotal moments when it started to shift regarding calling others, judging others. And so for me, it's, you know, this mental, this mental mind shift, there's three ways that I can judge. The judge is like, is it not like, the judge is the biggest one for me in terms of self-sabotage. I judge myself, I judge others, or I judge the circumstances. And throughout my adulthood, judging others, I can't control them. I legitimately know that. I specifically know that no one can make me feel anything or do anything or say anything. Can't judge them because I can't control them. I certainly can't control the situation because weather happens, COVID happens. COVID didn't begin because of me. I mean, that's <laughs> egomaniacal. So the only thing I can judge is myself. So what shifted? I didn't, I knew that I wasn't becoming the better person who I wanted to be. And so regarding bullying, I know at a very young age that it wasn't about me, what they were doing. What was about me is what I can control about what I would do or what I could do. And I didn't want to do that anymore because I felt worse about it. I didn't feel good about myself. I didn't feel empowered. I felt little and small. You brought up the great point and segue of, of what I want to go into was the self-sabotage and taking you away from your story now and, and more in a generalization. Self-sabotage is a little bit more common than most people think, right? I, I mean, we make a lot of decisions every day that might be really small that are usually because we, we want ourselves to fail because maybe we don't want to deal with the consequences. It obviously happens on a much larger scale for certain people. But talk to me a little bit about what you see in general terms as a lot of self-sabotage and what some people can do to kind of avoid it or at least take those steps. That's a great question. Wow. Uh, self-sabotage. We're not we're hardwired to protect ourselves. I mean, part of our DNA, we're we're trained throughout centuries and ages to protect ourselves from getting eaten. And in this day and age from getting trampled on or taken advantage of. So we revert to those behaviors. I know I revert for me coming out of the chute, so to speak, I got to protect myself. Now as an infant, as a baby, I don't know how to do that. So I look and lean onto the experiences and service and help of others. And at the same time, while I'm engaging in that interaction, because it's all symbolic interactionism, it's all you know based on I'm not involved, I'm not engaged with the culture at that point or the larger society. It's me and my caregiver and, and what they bring to the table. That's that's the kicker. So I allow myself, even though it's just in the, the limbic system in the brain, not to get too technical, I'm hardwired to protect myself. So it's based on the interaction that I have with my primary caregiver or those who are who allow me to be in their care. So based on that, I'm either gonna for me, please do well and or do everything I think I need to do and be really restless and just get all this stuff that I think I'm getting done. I'm busy, but not productive. And um, so for example, for me, I'm, the, I'm a pleaser. 
oh, thank you so much for doing this. Look how wonderful you are. Thank you, you just helped me so much. And I'm, get, I'm receiving kudos and, and I'm feeling really good because I helped another. At the same time, when we're young, those, that's, that becomes hardwired as a very, very young person. And then it continues on and it it's, um, perpetuates. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm a pleaser. So then I continue to sabotage myself only to the extent that, to the extent that I enjoy doing for others, but then my own cup is depleted. So I'll continue moving or maneuvering around in order to do things for others. In addition to that, I often still to this day find myself, I'm a yes ma'am. And then I get irritated, frustrated, resentful that the person isn't reciprocating. Well, they never said that they were going to do anything. They asked me for something or I did it of my own volition when they didn't even ask. So that sabotages myself. Uh, so, the, and that's just one example. The judge big time, definitely. I uh, call her Anna. She and I have had an intimate relationship and I don't mean in a schizophrenic way. I reserve a place for her in the back of the room because usually she'll come up and I know she's going to show some point during the day. I reserve a seat for her and I'll have a, uh, okay, I see you, I hear you, you're coming up and I'll acknowledge it. I'll tell anybody I'm there. I'm not saying Anna's here. Um, I th I'm having a sense of imposter syndrome right now. I'm feeling this, is, she's bubbling up. And I don't mean to say it in a third person. I'm feeling inadequate and fearful in this moment. Not that it's debilitating. And the more that I own it and I acknowledge it, knowing that she's gonna show up, she's got a seat over there already. I say, hey, I've, I've, I knew you were coming. Thanks for visiting. Thanks for stopping by. I just, I wanted to let you know that I appreciate you because I know what, because she served me. The, she, our judge is self-sabotaging the bullying. It served me when I judged others because they were doing something to me or I judged the circumstances or I judged me. It served me to the extent of wanting to be a better person. The sabotage comes into play when it debilitates me. I'm judging me so to the extent that I don't feel good about me. So I might as well go crawl in a corner. That doesn't help. Or I'm judging others and I'm sitting in that sense of I'm, I'm just restless and I'm festering because this person's not doing what I want them to do or behaving in a way that I want them to behave and I can't control them. It doesn't serve me because then I sit there and then eh, or the circumstances. COVID's out to get me. Everyone's out to, to hurt me. They're not. That's me telling myself that that's the case and nobody else is thinking about me to the extent that I am. How arrogant is it of me to think that the whole world conspires to be all about me or that you are thinking about me 10 minutes after this, this, this conversation's over, get over myself. So when I focus on what I can do and what I'm not doing, that serves me well, am I procrastinating? Am I hypervigilant? Am I a stickler? Am I, Oh, I'm a martyr. Oh, look at me. I did all this. That doesn't serve me well. So I allow myself as well as I can to jump in and, and unhijack myself. So that imposter syndrome, I say, this is what's coming up. And it, it's sooner it happens, the sooner I'm able to infiltrate and say, no, no, not today or not right now, the, the better person I am, because I can then be more productive and appreciative of what I have in the moment at this time. Yeah. I've, for me personally, I've found when I'm speaking in a group or I'm at a convention and that, and that's usually where it's the worst for me, right? When I'm at a convention of my peers and I, I remember at a coaching convention, the first time I spoke, literally the front row was people that I've read all their books and, and shaved me. And now I'm in front of them. Like, what am I possibly going to tell them? Um, so what I found and worked for me was basically telling myself and telling the crowd, like, hey, I'm nervous to be here. 
and, and not trying to hide it. And I found that's that's much better. Do you feel that's the way to go and do it is is to recognize it. Don't try to suppress it. Embrace it, you know, and, and kind of deal with it. Um, Absolutely. No, no, no I, I was just going to say, and, and I and I feel more at ease. But then I go back and worry and say, are the people thinking less of me now because I admitted that I'm weak? <laughs> so it's that battle where internally I feel better because I admitted it. But then when I, when I reflect on it, I worry that maybe I was exposed too much. Oh, that's a good, that's a nice, that's a nice point you made that, that whole, do I want to, excuse the expression, vomit share? I want, do I want, and then do I want to, am I using, what's the purpose for me sharing? Am I using it to, to the extent that I want to let me be seen and known? Or do I want to overshare? I'm like, oh, do you love me? Uh, I found, I would say, 98% of the time out of 100, more often than not, that I, people have told me that I'm more relatable. People see all these initials behind my name. That's what I did. That's not who I am. Do you know why those initials are there? Because I was afraid to grow up and I stayed in school because I didn't know what else to do with my life. I'm not kidding. I, 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 I laugh because that's where I'm at. I have two master's degrees. I'm in the middle of my PhD and I really do it because I'm afraid to not do it because then I actually have to legitimately do something to fill that time. Oh my gosh, exactly. And then, and then, okay, so I get to go to Germany. Oh, okay. You know what? I can stay in school and, or, and I love the man and I, I still adore him, even though we're divorced, he's a wonderful father and an amazing man. And at the same time, I get to go to Germany. So I get to travel and then, okay. And I have my own career, not, I'm a, a professional student. So and I don't mean just to sidetrack, but the, I, told, I get what you're saying. And to identify with, and identify with what you mentioned earlier is being in front of a group of, uh, people with your, your, not even your peers, your idols. Well, not say your, but my idols. Um, there's, there's two, two parts of this. I love this. This conversation is amazing. So yes. Am I going to do it? Am I relatable? Like hoity toity. I'm going to use all these words and espouse all this knowledge and wisdom. I got no knowledge. I got no wisdom. I sat my butt in a chair, read, read some papers and wrote some papers and listened to some people talk for 12 years. I know nothing. That's how I feel inside. And other people say, you know, you're amazing. I don't have a podcast. I don't know how you do it and come up with this stuff every day. I don't know. That's amazing to me. And at the same time, you get up in front of a stage every day. And sometimes the stage is your mirror, your bathroom mirror. So what do you want to present to the world? There's a, uh, I use this quote a lot. His name is Charles Horton Cooley. He's a famous sociologist from the early 1900s. And it's called, this quote is called the looking glass self. Now this is not fact because Theories are just not, they're theories. You can't, you can't prove a theory. You can disprove it. But take this with a grain of salt. To what extent do you show up in your life? And are you you? I am not what I think I am. I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. Let's say that again. I am not what I think I am. I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty deep and, and truthful on, on so many levels. And um, it, it, it's just, there's, 
that balance and finding that balance is really, really tough. And it, it's funny because the, you know, when I asked you about, you know, what you want me to promote and you sent me the link for your clubhouse, th- th- that right now is probably the biggest stressor that I have right now. I, I, I want to have a clubhouse room and I'm scared to death to click that create room. I know, right? So ridiculous. I can do, I could do the podcast. I can do all this, but I am literally scared to hit that green button that says create room on a clubhouse right now. And it's live. And right? it's like, see, I didn't create, I thought I was creating a room. I joined in March and I like, but by the, by the time they came around, I had a summit. I thought I was creating a room. Oh, I'll start a room. Okay. I'll create a club. You know what I was doing? I'm like, oh no, I gotta. But see, the thing about it is, I thought I was going live. I thought I was creating the room to go live in the moment. I had, I had the, I had the, um, the encouragement, the motivation, the, the, the safeness. Like, okay, to, for this moment, I'm okay. I feel okay right now. But to create a club, that's a legacy, because right. a room can come and go. You don't have to host it under anybody. Create a club. And then I thought, well, go home or go, go big or go home. You know, go, go hard or go home. So why not? I'm gonna have a summit. Yeah, I'm gonna have 18 people. The first week of May, I got 18 presenters and I'm coordinating this all on my own. And this is the pleaser, this is the high achiever, this is the restless, I gotta do everything but not be productive. Well, fortunately I was. So I, if, if, I, if I buy into something and I say I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. So then only to what extent do, am I exhausted such that the following week after the summit, I'm falling asleep in meetings. People are calling me on Zoom. Laura, are you kidding? What? What? Right? Yeah, I'm fine. We thought, are you okay? I'm like, I'm not kidding. So these, these are the ditches that we dig, or I dig, and go hard or go home. So the intensor, the intention is, is good, and it's whole, and it's pure. At the same time, when we're in it, can we unravel from it? And the whole thing about the quote is I'm not, I'm not who I think I am. Cause I don't, I know me a little bit and I don't know what you think of me. So I'm not what you, I am what I think you think I am. Oh, you're amazing. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Okay. You're telling me that, that I think I'm amazing. So I got to prove that. Right. Or I don't know what you think. And I, I'm thinking like, you're looking at me with dirty looks. Ugh, they must think I'm a piece of nothing. Ugh. And then I internalize that. I really don't know what you think. And so if everyone else thinks I'm, I'm crazy or nutso or whatever it is, I can say that because I'm not crazy because crazy people don't ask if they're crazy. And I can say <laughs> that with love as a licensed counselor. I'm a little bit crazy. I am a little bit. At the same time, I know enough to ask that, how am I doing? Can, I can't use me as a barometer. Yeah, I check in with other people. You seem a little off today, Laura. How'd you know? Because <laughs> we know you. Because I can't see me. At the same time, when the bullying comes in, judging myself like when i fall asleep in a zoom meeting and people call me on the phone 20 minutes later you okay yeah i'm good you okay no you need some sleep no i'm good i got some sleep you just hit it on the phone of 20 people <laughs> that's not helpful <laughs> i can say that i could say that i could hide that because i'm embarrassed about it that's the thing i don't have guilt about it. i'm embarrassed and it shows that i'm real people know like with you people know how hard you work and that we're not perfect. I'm going to fail. I'd rather fail forward. At least I know where I'm going to hit my head, like on my keyboard when I fall asleep in a meeting. <laughs> meeting. At least I know where I'm going to land. It's like Rocky. Every single time I get hit, because it's going to happen. That thing I can count on, I'm going to fail. And that's great, because you know what? I don't want to be perfect, because then there's no room to grow. Right. What's the point? If I'm not growing, I'm, I'm grow or go. There's all the opportunity to learn. And that's the thing about life is that 
I never want to get to the end of my life judging others or myself or the circumstances saying my arse twitches. <laughs> These people make my arse twitch. <laughs> I don't want to fester and marinate in that nasty. That's not fun. Like, oh my God, I can't laugh at myself. Oh my gosh, I fell asleep. And I mean, obviously I'm harping after three weeks later, still. It, it's it, a good thing to laugh. Yeah, and it's funny how the different aspects of, of what kind of gets to us. You know, I, I did, I got our reviews in from one of the last sessions I did before COVID and, you know, it was rate on the five, you know, one out of five, how your presenter was. And I got like a 4.75, but the one three, right, right. The one three I got said everything was fine, but I was bothered by how much he paced on the stage. And, and I don't know what bothered me more, the fact that someone took the time to write that or the fact that my pacing maybe took away from someone learning because they were so focused on my pacing that they didn't hear what I was saying. So I'm kind of caught between being upset because they said it or being upset because I missed a, I missed a chance to teach someone something. Oh, but you even went to a place where I went because it was like a 4.7. I'm like, wait, where, why isn't a 5? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, I have... I have such a hard time with that. Like, I just want, you know, I had 4.0s through both of my master's degrees. Like, I, I want that perfect. And the fact that I got that, I was just like, I paced too much. <laughs> and, and even, even right? And I, pay, I don't even know I'm doing it on my phone. I can't sit while I'm texting. I'll pace my condo. <laughs> I'll pace it. And I, I need to. I don't need to. I choose to. I even know it's, it's unconscious. I just find, I'm like, wait, I'm pacing. I didn't even know when it started. And then briefly is that... Um, I remember we'll have a 4.0, you know, out of grad school. There was nothing less than a, like once I got through my first two years of college, I was good at it. So there can't earn nothing but an A. And so I'm and a 98% on a test is still an A, right? I go into my professor's room and 98 statistics. What did I do wrong? Laura, you earned a 98%. Get over yourself. The professor's telling me this. And I'm still like, uh-oh, what do I got to do? I did something wrong. Come on. I mean, really? I, I wish they realized. Right. I wish how much they realized though, how much that bothers us. Because they're looking at it as, oh, this kid, you know, they're just being annoying and want that perfect and they're crazy, but it really keeps you up at night. Like you didn't get those two points. And when is it enough? That's the thing about perfectionism is imposter syndrome. Do I, how much do I get done? If it can't be perfect, then why bother? Well, then I get nothing done. Right, we and don't take I'm that trying, first step. I'm, right, exactly. So true. This is all just interwoven. And I think this is a, this is not a, a single episode for your pocket. This is a series. <laughs> Yep. This is a show. This is a club on Clubhouse. Wow. Step into your beauty. Step yeah. into your power. I'm calling you. Call to action. Call to action. Or at least come into my club, Phenomenal Women Unite. And I will. you can have a room, a consistent room, every week, every day, if you wanted. I will offer you that. I, I That's will, my call to action to you. Call to I, action to you. I will join your club, and I will try to push that green button to create. <laughs> that, that's my goal. By the end of this week, I will push that green button and create at least once. So how do we how do we get over it how do you as a licensed counselor as just a, a human in general how do you start to steer people towards and i know it's unique you know everyone's a little bit different but but what are the generalistics of how do we get over this get over the fact that you might not get over it that it's always get going to be process right might, it might very well be some people say there is no imposter syndrome i beg to differ i know that i have control over to what extent that i entertain I can, I can, people say, um, are you suicidal? No, I'm not. Have you ever thought about it? Yeah, I haven't entertained it. 
I'm not dancing with it. I choose not, I call her Anna. I choose not to dance with Anna. She's going to show up. Have I ever thought about suicide, for example? Different show? Yes, of course. Do I think about it? Not really. I just know in the back of my mind that it's going to happen. There are going to be certain points of my day, life, whatever, when I'm not going to feel as well-equipped or as confident or competent as I would like. That's not a bad thing. That just gives me a barometer of how much more for, I'm a Jeopardy junkie, man. I mean, I'm a lifelong learner. I love learning. And that means that I don't know everything. And what's, I don't want to be around people who know it all. Cause if they know it all good, help you know it all go by yourself. I want to be around people who don't know it all and know that they don't want to know it all and who want to be better. Imposter, because my, I want to be perfect. It's that's what my default goes to my press play is that I want to move and grow and grow and, and just glow because, and I can't, I won't, I refuse to be in a place. What doesn't serve me well is thinking I know everything. I've never, ever in my life been like that. I've always growing up. Oh my gosh, that's how that works. Or being eight, like, oh, that's how that, and just the, the, the curiosity and the, even just something like just the electricity. I remember that's how that works. Something as simple as that. That's why that person does that. Now I get it. Or, okay, thank you for helping me understand. Thank you for having this conversation because now I understand you better. It's not a fact. It's based on that interaction with the person. To dive in deep with everything and saying, I want to learn more so I can be more because we're human beings, not human doings. If in order for me to be more, I got to live life more authentically and thicker. I want to be so thick of myself and so full of myself that I cannot help but nourish others from the overflow. For me, that's what life is about. I think that is a perfect way to wrap this up. Like that, that whole segment from the, the opening part where you talked about suicide, which I think is interesting because not in just a, a suicide sense, but maybe just violence. I think we tend to think that anyone that thinks of violence or thinks of suicidal is violent or is suicidal. And it, it isn't, we, we all have those thoughts and trying to say we don't, you know, my deep secret is there are literally times that I'm in a line at a grocery store or at a store. And I thought, what would this person in front of me do if I just smacked him right in the back of the head out of nowhere? That doesn't make me a violent person, right? Like that, that's just, but it's a thought. But if you tell anyone that, they're like, oh, my gosh, you're so violent. But no, if I did it, that would make me violent. Just having the thought just means that I'm curious. I'm curious about the right. reaction in society. Well, that's the next step is how do I deal with that? And I have techniques that you can that you can do that you can use on a daily basis in a moment, in a moment, rather than going to this home shanty for 30 minutes to 60 minutes in the morning. That's not going to help me when I'm standing in line and someone in front of me is making me is I'm, I'm getting irritated by or someone cuts you off in line at, or when you're driving that how could that do that and what's the matter with okay how is that serving so there are certain techniques that one can do to actually well you just you just nailed it we are all we're all not not guilty it's part of human nature that we do that so how do we cope right that's the next step owning it and then scope so if someone wants to work with you, get more from you, learn from you, what are the best ways to follow you, get more of your stuff? Yeah, my website is drlauracobblifecoach.com. 
lifecoach.com. That's D-R-L-A-U-R-A-C-O-B-B, lifecoach.com. And I'm always available on LinkedIn. And that is the ending portion of LinkedIn, Laura-A-Cobb, C-O-B-B. Awesome. I will make sure to put all that in the notes. And thank you. And you're so right. We, we could have we could probably do another 20 episodes of what, what we broke home. So I definitely will have you back on and, and we'll kind of dig deeper into some of the stuff, but this has been an amazing talk because I think a lot of people have the feelings and thoughts that we discussed and are afraid to talk about them or, Oh, I'm a bad person because I thought this. And it's really when you take the action on that bad thought, that's when you kind of take step over that line. And I, I think this has been eye opening for me. And I, I hope a lot of people get value out of, of what we talked about. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you and everything you do. And I will see you in my room at Clubhouse. I will. I will. I will join in a few minutes, and then we'll, we'll work. On, we'll work on hitting that green button. But, but again, thank you, Dr. Laura Cobb, for joining us on the Mental Cast. I'm Dan Mickle, your host, and we'll see you next month. Thank you for listening to The Mental Cast, powered by Soul Performance Academy and hosted by Dan Mickle. You can always reach the show on all social media platforms at the username at RealDanMickle or via the show's website at danmickle.com. Don't forget to check out our title sponsor, Soul Performance Academy, at the username at 717soul and on their website, 717soul.com. We hope you can join us for our next episode.